Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. Poetry not just as artistic expression, but as language rescue or language defense is at the core of a new book written in Isthmus Zapotec, an indigenous language from Mexico, and then into Spanish, and then English, all of which are included in the book. Irma Pineda is the author of In the Belly of the Night and Other Poems, and her translator, Wendy Call, is our guest today to talk about the book, about language defense, the modern threats of the internet and television, also about Irma and Isthmus Zapotec culture. Wendy Call is a writer, editor, translator, author of the book No Word for Welcome, The Mexican Village Faces the Global Economy, and the chapbook Tilled Paths Through Wilds of Thought part of a series of artist residencies she completed in U.S. national parks. Her narrative nonfiction essays and other creative nonfiction have appeared in 50 journals and magazines, and we're delighted to have our neighbor here to talk about Irma Pineda. Wendy, welcome. Thank you so much, Paul. How did you learn Spanish and start to translate Spanish language poets into English? Well, how I learned Spanish is an, is an earlier story than how I started translating. I spent part of my childhood as a military kid on the U.S.-Mexico border. So I didn't really learn much Spanish because there weren't bilingual schools at that time, but there were multilingual playgrounds. And so in elementary school, nearly all of my classmates were Mexican-American or or Mexican um, children of farm workers in the border between California and Mexico. And so really all I learned was, um, one, that a huge part of the world speaks Spanish, and two, how to pronounce the letters that we don't have in English and the sounds we don't have in English. And then when I got to high school, we were living in a place with um, very few Latinos in Southern Maryland. And the person who was the Spanish teacher at school, when I was finally in the ninth grade and they offered Spanish, had previously been the German teacher and had Spanish as like her third language. And I couldn't bear her accent. (laughs) So I took French because I didn't know how French was supposed to sound. And I, I realized my mistake much later in doing that, but I actually only took one kind of academic semester of Spanish. My very last semester of college, I finally realized, why am I studying French? <laughs> I should be studying Spanish. So I took that one semester uh, and then really learned Spanish uh, later when I was doing political activism in Boston in a neighborhood uh, in the south end of Boston and was the only native English speaker in the group. And so it was folks from Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic and Cuba and Venezuela. So that was great because I got to hear a real diversity of accents. Um, None of those folks was Mexican or Chicano. And so later when I started spending more time in Mexico, I learned things like different ways to pronounce words And there were words that I didn't realize had S's in them because all of those Caribbean Spanish speakers didn't pronounce those S's. Uh, And so I relearned in some ways Spanish when I was spending more time in Mexico. And during the years that I was uh, doing the research for No Word for Welcome, which was the early 2000s, I lived in Oaxaca for a total of about three years and lived in the part of Oaxaca that is the home community of Irma Pineda, this poet. And I did not ever meet her um, or encounter her work at that time. She hadn't yet published a book at that time. She was living in Mexico City, um, working during those years. And so I actually first encountered her work in a literary journal that was published in Mexico City in 2005, which was the year that her first book came out. 
And I really enjoyed the poetry, but I thought, I'm not a translator. So it never even occurred to me to, to translate or attempt to translate her work. And then fast forward a few years in here in um, Seattle in 2008, one of my neighbors, uh, who's actually since moved back to Oaxaca, but he was from the region, is from the region that Irma is from. And we were organizing some multilingual literary events. At every event, we had Spanish, uh, English, and one indigenous or First Nations language from somewhere in Latin America. And he really wanted us to do an event um, with some work in Isthmus Zapotec, which is his home language. And so he gave me some of Irma's poems and said, I want you to translate these. And I said, oh, Pepe, I'm not a translator. He said, oh, but you live there and you, you know the region and you know some of the local vocabulary and you're writing a book about it. And I said, well, that's all true, but I'm not a translator. And I don't speak or read any Isthmus Zapotec. Uh, and he was insistent that I translate these poems. There were three of them. And I did that. And three of those poems are in this book. Um, one of them is the title poem. And um, I couldn't stop thinking about these poems after I translated this trio of poems for this event in 2008. And so... A couple months later, a few months later, I wrote to Irma, um, sent her an email and asked if uh, it would be okay for me to translate some more of her poems and could she send me some. And so a few months later, I got this envelope um, that contained four of her first five books because once she published her first book in 2005, um, she published a book a year for several years after that. And that's how we got started. And uh, it was a very long process for many, many reasons. But that envelope full of books that she sent me um, that I received in either late 2008 or early 2009 um, are the sources of all the poems that are in this book. Fantastic. Her family is populated with activists. She herself is an activist. Her father was disappeared when she was very young. Can you talk to us about her remarkable path? She really does have an, a remarkable path. Uh, so Irma Pineda is from a city called Huchitan uh, in the state of Oaxaca, uh, close to the Pacific coast. And it's um, a community, you know, her community, the Isthmus Zapotec community, and that entire geographic region, which also includes many other ethnic communities, um, indigenous groups, is really known throughout history in Mexico and throughout Latin America as being fiercely independent, um, really defending their autonomy in every way. And uh, so much so that when I lived there and I would go to other parts of Mexico and I would tell people where I was living, they would say, oh, really? Aren't you scared to live there? Uh, not because of drug cartels or the reasons that I really should be afraid to live there, but because of the really powerful reputation of, of these communities. And this was obviously non-Indigenous people asking me these questions. So uh, Irma grew up in this community of not just really intense activism, but also a really incredible um, cultural and artistic life. Um, almost everyone that I have met in Huchitan, which is a city of over 100,000 people, so it's a significant city, has some kind of creative practice. They write poems, they translate between Spanish and Zapotec, they play music, they do embroidery, they make visual art. Um, so having a creative practice is just part of living there, regardless of, of what else you do in your daily life. And so Irma's father, um, both of her parents were teachers, 
and her father was an important activist in a movement in Huchitan that actually was the first opposition party to gain control, uh, meaning political control of a city in the entire country. Uh, that was in the early 80s. Um, he had already been disappeared at that point. This movement was active through the 70s into the 80s, and, and actually it, it still exists today. And he was essentially martyred to this movement in 1974 when he was disappeared. And the case remains open. Um, Irma and her family continue to be a really active part of the disappeared persons movement in, in Mexico, which unfortunately has a large number of families involved in it. And she grew up really in the public eye for that reason as, you know, one of two children of this person who'd been such an important part of this movement and was disappeared by, presumably by forces working on behalf of the Mexican government. And so she grew up in public space while her mother was continuing her activism, continuing to work as a teacher, and continuing to um, search for her husband and um, for other disappeared people. And so Irma uh, started her career actually as both a political activist and as um, a journalist and as a teacher. She did all three of those things. And she's currently, for the last three years, she's been one of two official representatives for all of the indigenous peoples of uh, Latin America at the UN and the UN sessions for the last three years. Powerhouse. Yeah. She is a powerhouse. Yeah. What fascinated you about her poetry? Oh, really everything. I, I think one of the things that really struck me about her poems, well, first of all, just the concept of bilingual poetry was so engaging to me and thinking about the work of creating a poem in a language that has, um, in, in the case of her language, around 100,000 speakers. Um, the family of Zapotec languages is really large and probably has a quarter of a million speakers. But within what we call Zapotec, there are languages that are very, very different from each other. So in terms of the language that you know she really shares, um, with her community. It's probably about 100,000 people. And so she's writing a set of poems for a geographically limited community that now has a diaspora that's all over the world, but shares shares a culture, shares a history, shares a, a cosmology. But then she's self-translating those poems into a language that is global, that has people that have completely different religious backgrounds, completely different cultural and political and social histories. And so she's creating what she calls mirror poems for two audiences that do have an overlap, but they're largely, you know, in different worlds. And so one of the things that she talks about is that she creates a poem within the literary and cultural tradition of Isthmus Zapotec, um, or Dijasa, which is um, the word that Isthmus Zapotec people call their language. Uh, and then she recreates what she calls a mirror poem in a language that is really a global language that has a, a global readership. And so Knowing that she calls her poems mirror poems was one of the things that made me feel that it was even conceivable that I could translate them into English without being a fluent reader, and at the time not a reader at all, of Isthmus Zapotec, because I could think of these two mirror poems as, as sort of existing in different ecosystems. And I could take the one in the Spanish ecosystem, translate that into English, and then you know work with Irma 
really intensively to try and understand what's going on in the Zapotec poem. And one of the other things that was really important is she not only comes from a family of teachers, she's an incredibly gifted teacher, and she has infinite patience and spends literally hours with me talking about every single poem, uh, every single line of every poem. Um, She gives me readings that relate to literary references that are in the poems. And so with all of that support, that's what makes me feel like it's even possible to approach this work. So rather than translation, transliteration is the word that, that comes up in terms of how these poems get created. And it's, it's, to me, it's fascinating. The whole thing of having three languages in one book is, is a really amazing and beautiful thing. There are aspects of Isthmus Zapotec that have more in common with English than in Spanish. And uh, you mentioned this in the book. Tell us about how that fact guided your translation efforts. The more that I work with Irma, uh, you know, she, she and I continue to work on bringing her poems into English. So there's a, a second book of her work that will be coming out next year. Uh, and right now I'm translating um, two more of her books. So I, I think of my work with Irma as really a, a lifelong project, uh, which is also helpful to me because it gives me patience in um, what a complex language Isma Zapotec is, which I, I started studying it formally about a year ago. And that has been an interesting process because now, as I understand more about the grammatical structure, I'm definitely a different translator than I was when I translated the poems in this book. And this book was already in press when I started taking uh, the classes. And now some I look at some of my translations and I think, oh, maybe I would do that differently. Although I do, as a translator, really believe that you're translating, you're, transli- you're transliterating, but most of all, you're creating a new poem in English that mirrors those original languages in some way, but it has to be its own poem. And so I think, you know, people will joke um, that what's lost in the translation of poetry is the poetry, and I really don't believe that. I think that what, what can be lost, and often is lost, is those cultural references, um, historical references, some of that religious and spiritual and and political and cultural context that surrounded the original poem, that ecosystem. But your job as a translator is to create a new poem that exists in a new ecosystem. So I try not to worry too much about that. Um, But in terms of the relationship between Zapotec and English, uh, or as languages, or not as languages, but as um, the raw material for making poetry, one example is you know, romance languages are famous for the way that they embed gender in everything, uh, in every aspect of the language. And one really interesting thing happening with Spanish speakers today around the world is different ways to eliminate gender from the language or to create words for a gender that is neither female nor male for talking about third gender communities. Uh, Zapotec doesn't have gender in the same way. It's more like, I mean, obviously English is a gendered language, but it's not nearly as gendered as Spanish. And Zapotec is more like English in that um, you don't have feminine and masculine verb or or endings for nouns. You don't have his and hers, um, for example. One thing that's interesting about uh, Zapotec verbs is there's three different verb endings for what we would call third person singular. He or his, it ha- you know, we have to decide in English, are we going to have he or his, and now we've incorporated there, but with the plural, 
verb ending with the understanding that that's singular. Whereas in Zapotec, there's three different verb endings for third person singular. One, if you're talking about a human, one, if you were talking about a living thing that is not a human, and one, if you were talking about an object. And so one of the things that Zapotec linguists say is that we don't care about your gender in the same way that the Spanish language cares about it. We care about what kind of being are you? Are you a human? Are you another kind of living being? Or are you, you know, what we call in English an object, um, but a lot of those objects in Zapotec also have a spirit and are considered to be honorable in the same way that, that living beings are. So the gendered nature of Spanish, for example, the train is a boy and an apple is a girl. Exactly, exactly. El tren, right? Exactly. Yeah. Tell us more about the Isthmus Zapotec language. It sounds fascinating to me to hear about the differences. You know, when we think of indigenous languages, uh, maybe if we live here, we have, we're lucky to have a word or two in Lashutseed or Walshutseed, yeah. like Siab or Haichka. Uh, you know, I remember Beaver Chief saying, if you really wanted to thank someone, it was two hands. He said, Heichka with two hands, and less so with one hand, and not at all you say Heichka without hands. So, so there's that. But talk to us, about, and, and you're studying this language, which I think is absolutely fascinating. Tell us more about that. Well, studying it has really, it was one of uh, the gifts of the pandemic. The woman who is my teacher, um, she's very young. She's in her late 20s. She learned Zapotec formally as a teenager. She grew up in a house um, with Zapotec-speaking grandparents. Um, her mother is um, an expert. And often during when we're in the middle of our Zoom classes, if she can't remember a word or we ask her a complicated question about gr grammar, she'll turn around and ask her grandmother. Um, so her grandmother is really our textbook in some ways, or sir, her knowledge serves as our textbook because there aren't very many textbooks in this language. Compared to a lot of other indigenous American languages, it is widely spoken, very well documented. Many, many books are published in Zapotec, poetry, history, other, other genres of prose um, and other literary forms. And that's fairly unusual given, you know, now that we're in 500 years past the beginning of the genocide here, there have been such relentless efforts to destroy those languages. Isthmus Zapotec is actually doing relatively well. That said, there's not a comprehensive dictionary. There is um, a grammar book that describes the basic grammar for people who already speak the language. It's really more of a, a literacy tool for people that are native speakers and are learning how to write and read their language. But it's not so helpful for someone like me, who has no idea how things are supposed to sound. It's a tonal language, and there are, are three different tones. So the same word, um, or what we would perceive as the same word, with the three different tonal endings will mean three completely different things. And it's also a language that's very, very much rooted in sound. And so I think of Zapotec speakers as growing up with it's almost like a form of perfect pitch, or I think about it that way, in that what often our Zapotec teacher will tell us, well, no, 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 you should be able to hear that, that what you're saying is wrong because it doesn't sound good. And then she'll say it in the correct order or with the correct endings on the words, and I'll think, but that sounds the same. And so it's a verb-based language, so the, the, the order is verb, noun, object, which is a quality it shares with a lot of indigenous languages. And that has um, 
I would say cultural impacts in that often what is more important is the action than who is doing the action. And so there's a real emphasis on what is happening more than, than who is the person making the action happen. I'm reminded of Duke Ellington's poetics. If it sounds good, it is. Exactly. Right? But you have to have that ear right. to hear. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's interesting. Just that you are studying an indigenous Mexican language via Zoom. It's just, it's just mind-blowing to think that 10 years, this was completely inconceivable. And yes, like you said, one of the gifts of the pandemic. To get a sense of your translation process, obviously choices have to be made. Obviously, as you said, a different kind of subtext is created for the poem in, in English than it would be in Zapotec or, or Spanish. But a good example is the one you use in the intro, the word for soul. Oh, yes. Talk about that. So, genda is um, a prefix that is put on words, it's put on nouns, and it's used with, with a wide range of nouns. And it's also kind of a grammatical function in that you can put genda at the beginning of a word to sort of make it into a noun um, if you're using a, a word that, that is not, you know, we do the same thing in English, right? Create nouns out of other parts of speech. But genda, uh, what the word itself means is soul or spirit. Um, it can also refer to your spirit animal that, that's guiding you through life. It can refer to a gift that you've received. Um, for example, the talent for being a poet. Or if you are um, elected uh, mayor of the town. You know, those are all um, gendas. And so one of the things that, that first... Um, sort of tripped me up of the many, many things that tripped me up when I started really looking at the Zapotec versions of Irma's poems, which I've done all of, the whole time that I've been um, working with her as her translator. You know, I've always been puzzling over those Zapotec poems, but often I would just make a list of questions and then go and have her tell me all of the answers. I wasn't learning the language until pretty recently. Um, but in any case, when I started looking at her poems and seeing this word genda, 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 genda over and over in very different usages, when we had our first conversation about it, it must have been at least 45 minutes for me to learn you know, what this one word means. And and that also means that uh, sometimes people have the expectation that there's a one-to-one -one relationship between a word in one language and a word in another language. And so they have an expectation that every time they see the word genda in the original, it's going to be translated the same way into English. And that can't function. I mean, first of all, there isn't a one-to-one -one relationship between words in different languages. But also with a word like that, that's, that's encapsulating a significant aspect of philosophy and ethics and, and cosmology, of course that's not going to translate directly. And so the truth is there are many appearances of the, of the prefix genda in her Zapotec versions of the poems that I have actually deleted from the English versions because they are added on to words that we don't think of as sacred or objects that we don't think of as sacred. And so sometimes I want to shake up the reader a little bit in English and have them wonder, oh, why is that feature of the natural landscape sacred? Um, and sometimes I, you know, let them take the easy way out and I just delete the genda. X Q-U-E-N-D-A, is that? So there's two ways, yeah. So um, so genda with G-U-E-N-D-A 
is the noun form. And then shkenda is um, when it is possessive in some way, um, which may mean that it's possessing a quality. So it's, it's a grammatical difference, it's two different grammatical forms of the same word. Fascinating. How about reading the poem Guest on page 47? You know, as you're talking about this and you speak Spanish, I don't know, have you read the Zapotec versions of some of these poems? You know, I uh, before, before the first reading, I've only um, done two U.S. events for this book. And before the first one, the second one was a virtual event, so Irma was there. Uh, and she could read, and she's really an incredible reader of her work, the Spanish and Zapotec originals. But the first event I was doing on my own, and I spent an entire week practicing one of the poems to be able to do it in, in Zapotec. And I should probably memorize the poem so that I can always pull it out when I need to. Um, and, and my my Zapotec teacher, um, who teaches my Zoom classes, she recorded the poem for me. And then I I probably went through it a hundred times before I did it right? um, right? in public. But but I can read guest in English. Um, I would love it. <laughs> and this is for her son, yes? Yes, this book is dedicated to her son, who is now in his mid-twenties. Uh, and she wrote this poem um, when he was not yet born when she was pregnant. Guest, for Sebastian, when he bloomed in my heart. The galloping of horses is your heart's flight in my belly. Traveler coming down the path, I save a shard of moonbeam to give you and a large shell with the sea inside. My hands weave a frangipani garland to thread my heart on and place around your neck like our people place around the necks of our town's important guests. Before you arrive, I'll tuck heads of garlic into doorways and windows to scare away the Nahual who would drink your new blood. I'll look for an earthen pot whose belly will guard your lifeline, and I'll bury it under a large shade tree so you will never forget the land that holds your soul, so no demon will torment you. Don't forget the power of our blood, because we come from the clouds. The tigers, trees, and boulders are our parents. You will be blessed on this earth, traveler who has not yet arrived. When we hear about, and we, I mean, when I say we, I mean the culture that I come from. <laughs> not necessarily that I share the feeling. <laughs> But when we hear about blood drinking and warding off curses, the average person in the U.S. would think this quaint superstitions or something like that. In the meantime, we deal with TV uh, reports of mass murders in grammar schools and what have you. So you talk about warding off demons. Maybe we have some demons to ward off in our own culture. And maybe the fact that we've forsaken the energetic for the material is at the core of a lot of our problems. Tell us what you've learned of Zapotec culture from this work, and especially contrasting it with the hyper-materialist, capitalist culture that seems to run everything and results in people like Donald Trump becoming president, for example. Well, I think learning about how life operates, how people think about life, what people's values are, even about you know one's own community, I think is a lifelong process. Um, I will say that one of the things that I've really loved about um, studying Irma's poems, and, and when I say study, I mean studying them in order to be able to, to translate them, and then also really learning from her because she's so engaged with 
the translation process and helping me through these poems is that her poetry, one of the things that's really um, quite remarkable, remarkable about it is that she is presenting us things that happened today in her neighborhood in Huchitan and also bringing back things that happened when she was a child but no longer happen or things that she learned from her grandparents or things from hundreds of years ago. And one of the things about speaking a language that doesn't have a lot of speakers, um, any language that has less than a quarter of a million speakers is considered in danger of extinction. So her family of languages is right on that cusp, but her language is certainly well under that number. So she really sees herself as having a role in keeping her language alive, keeping it vibrant, um, even things like resuscitating words that have fallen out of use. And so she will talk about how she includes words in her poems that generally she doesn't hear anyone younger than her grandparents talk or use day to day, partly because the concepts are no longer thought about by young people, partly because there's a lot of just borrowing the Spanish word rather than using um, the Zapotec word, which of course always happens when languages interface with, e with each other and when people are multilingual. And so she talks about part of what she's doing is bringing back words and concepts and phrases from her community that people might not be familiar with today. And so this concept of having of um, a spirit animal, it's not exactly the same as, as you know, the way that I've heard it described among um, indigenous communities here, you know, in, in our home region. Um, it is this idea of a creature that um, accompanies you. But there's also the idea of, of shapeshifters, which is sometimes the same word is used, although it's a slightly different concept. And so the idea that somebody might look like an old woman to you, but actually, you know, is a spirit that can have another shape, you know, those are, you know, what we would call old wives' tales. And they function the same way in Huchitan. They're old wives' tales, but people don't completely disbelieve them or you might tell children those stories and so there are um, concepts like that that are embedded within you know each word that's in a language which you know which is true in English too but we don't think about it because there's so much documentation of our language that we don't rely on the words that we speak to each other to literally hold our history whereas in a language that is mostly spoken and that most of its speakers don't read it or write it, which is, is still true with Zapotec. The only way that you're keeping all of those ideas and philosophical concepts and ideas about spirituality alive is by continuing to talk about them. And that's one thing that I've thought about a lot over the years I've translated Irma's poetry is a book of poems in her language has so much value for everyone in her community in a way that if I write a book of poems in English, that's great, but I am not playing a critical role in keeping the words that are in my book living. Whereas when she writes a book, she is, is literally keeping those words alive in the consciousness of Zapotec speakers by including them in her poems. Well, you know, I could make a counter-argument uh, in, in a way, <laughs> but... Point granted, this notion of the spirit animal, I think of the pagan tradition and the notion of the familiar. And we just finished Bless Me Ultima as a bedtime story. Oh. And I think about Ultima's owl right. and how that fits into that concept. Right. right? That, that's the image that comes up immediately. 
The chapter on Cord House reflects another translation decision. You can talk about that if you like, and, and maybe read parts four and five of that section, which are really fascinating. I think page 106 is where you'll find that, from In the Belly of Night and Other Poems by Irma Pineda. So Cord House uh, was... Um, half of a book of poems that Irma published in 2008. She, like a lot of um, poets, her books were not published in the order that she wrote them. So her first book was poems that were fairly recent um, at the time that they were published, 2005. And then she had other manuscripts that she published later. So the book that was published in 2008 um, are actually her oldest poems, so to speak. And so the concept of a chord house um, or or doyo in in Dijasar is Miss Sapoltek is that when a baby is born, you take the placenta and you put it into a specially chosen um, or even specially made earthen pot and you bury it somewhere on the family's land, which, you know, might, might be in the area where the house is, it might be, you know, in the field. And the idea is that that is a physical connection between you and your homeland. And so no matter where you go, and the Zapotec diaspora is enormous and international, um, there are people in my Zapotec class, I'm the only person in this class who is not an indigenous Zapotec person. And so we have students in the class who live in France and Atlanta and Los Angeles and Northern Mexico. And so the diaspora is huge, but the idea is that because of their do if they were born in Huchitan, they have this physical connection to the land. And so people talk about the courthouse as this um, lifeline that is connecting you to, you know, philosophically and metaphorically to the actual place that you were born. And so when I was um, going to translate this into English, it was a hard thing to translate because the idea of, you know, the birth cord and the placenta in a pot buried into the ground, that's something that's going to come up immediately for a Zapotec reader of these poems and is definitely not going to come up for an English reader, but it's also a very hard thing to embed into a few lines of poetry. And also the sound of the words in in Zapotec do yo, it rhymes, it's you know, it has a really beautiful round sound to it. And so I found myself translating the, that term in different ways, including as lifeline, um, also as courthouse, uh, to try and convey different things about this concept. So I'll read part four. Four and five, I was thinking. Okay, yep. Great. The woman sings, Beautiful boy, the one my heart loves most, your father, the one who loves you, has ripped the earth at the foot of a large tree to hold the vessel that houses your birth cord. The clay vessel is wide and cool, so the soul of your being can rest, protected by your ancestors' land. Bathed by their sweat, blessed by their labor, the land is lush, its shade ample, its arms long and strong, so the sun won't hurt you, and the northern winds won't overwhelm you. So there we have, you know, laid out quite literally the the story of what is the courthouse. Uh, And now part five of this poem. A son bloomed from your belly, the old women await his birth cord. The clay vessel that will protect it stands ready, so your baby will grow strong. 
Those in your house salted the doorway to tell the spirits a new Zapotec has blossomed. They will send your son a totem that will travel with him on his path, save him from all evil, and protect his destiny. Yeah, I just love the cultural sort of vibe that comes through. It's, 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 really, it's really potent. And uh, I just love this project so much. And, and of course, when I hear about the story, when I read these poems in particular from this section, it seems to me that the comforts of modern culture in a place like this, Seattle, has blinded us to the need to be deeply connected to place. You think this is at the root of our own challenge with climate breakage and a lot of the other problems that we're dealing with? Absolutely. It's absolutely at the root. And actually, the um, first time I visited the city where Irma um, grew up and still lives, she, she spent a lot of time um, living in Mexico City, but uh, is back in her home community of Huchitan now. The first time I visited Huchitan was in 1998. Um, so when we think back to 1998, there was not a lot of discussion in the U.S. outside of sort of tight environmental ecological circles about climate change. It was not everyday conversation. And my first day there, I was going to interview someone for the book that I was eventually hoping, hoping to write. And uh, I interviewed him. He was the director of a local environmental group in Huchitan. And he said, okay, now I'm going to interview you. And I said, okay. And he said, and we're going to do it on the radio. I have a radio show. And my Spanish was not very strong in 1998, and I, my heart dropped. And I thought, okay, I, I can't say no to this person. It's fair. I interviewed him. He's going to interview me. So we went over to the radio station, and he turns on, you know, it, it's a live show. And the first song ends, and it's time for us to speak. And what I remember as his very first question to me after he introduced me was, so you're from the United States. We have a guest from the United States on our show today. And... Our first question for you is, when are your people going to stop driving their SUVs so that we will stop having such horrible climate problems here in southern Mexico? And I have no recollection of what I responded to that question. But one, what I was thinking as I was responding was, this is an everyday thing that people are thinking about and concerned about, and the answer is very obvious to them. There are consumer things that wealthy people on the planet must give up in order for most of the people on the planet to be able to, you know, eke out an existence. And this person, you know, as uh, he actually um, owned a restaurant, that was his profession, this restaurant owner who uh, also ran this really fantastic environmental group, um, that, of course, that would be the first question that he would ask someone from the U.S. But in 1998, not a lot of people in the U.S. were talking about that. So, you know, these folks in these communities, not, not just activists, everyone in these communities is so far ahead of us um, on, on our thinking about these issues. Is it because of their connection to place? They see species disappearing. It's very clear to them. And, absolutely. And we're not, we're disconnected. You know? It's absolutely that connection. Uh, and I think even, well, not more, as much as that, one really, really different thing about, you know, community construction in not only this part of Mexico, but in this part of Mexico, is that the individual is not the most important thing. The collective is the most important thing. And if your individual behavior is damaging the collective, then you need to account for that. And that, of course, is the way the indigenous communities, you know, that 
I interact with here in the Seattle area function as well. And so it really, you know, it's, it's settler colonialism that doesn't function that way. And it's the majority peoples of the world that, you know, the settler colonialism um, orientation is what is aberrant and what is unusual, not the way that folks in Huchitan, you know, think about sense of place and, and connection to the more than human world. And, and that's, you know, Irma Pineda talks about how that is, you know, one of her primary motivations as a poet is to document, you know, her community. And, and what she says is, when I say my community, I'm not just talking about the humans, I'm talking about the plants, the animals, the rocks, the boulders, everything. Yeah. A system of holding people accountable, right? Yeah. There was a word used in the book, Cosmovision. Talk about how that applies to, I mean, whatever comes up to, in your mind, Zapotec culture or comparing Zapotec culture and our culture or uh, what comes to you when you think of that word in context with this project? I mean, I think about, about Cosmovision a lot in terms of the the largest system in which a poem functions. When I'm thinking about bringing a poem, you know, from Zapotec and, and Spanish, two different mirror poems into English, I try to think about that huge um, way of conceiving of the world, defining the world, thinking about the universe, thinking about where does life come from, where are we going, those, those largest scale questions, even though that seems very far from you know, a poem that exists on one page in a book, all of those assumptions that underlie our cosmovision come into play when we're reading a poem, when we decide whether we like a poem, when we decide, is this poem um, sentimental? Is this poem preachy? All of those things that we think when we are reading a piece of literature, and we're doing it unconsciously, we're deciding, oh, I like this poem, I don't like this poem, this poem is, is trying to preach to me, this poem is self-righteous, this poem is silly, whatever it is we're thinking, we think those things because of our cosmovision. And so one of the challenges of translating is that every community has a different cosmovision, and so the assumptions that a U.S. reader is going to bring to my English translation of one of these poems is very different than a Spanish reader or a Zapotec reader. Is there a poem that you'd like to read from the book that you think is, uh, obviously, any poem you'd think would be worth it because you translated it? <laughs> and I will say that these poems really are my favorites. You know, there were there are five different books that these poems are drawn from, and I spent a long time because it took me a very long time to find a publisher for this book. I spent a long time putting together different configurations of poems, thinking, oh, maybe this will pe- appeal to a U.S. publisher. And um, in the end, it's a Mexican publisher, so I was not successful on that front. But one of the things that that gave me when we decided to have a Mexican publisher publish the book was it allowed me to just pick the poems that I most loved. So every poem in this book is one of my favorites. But one poem that I will read because... It was one of the earlier poems that I encountered of, of Irma's, and it's uh, a poem, it, I think, if I remember correctly, this is the first translation that I published in what is, you know, to extent extent that any poetry journal is well-known, it's a fairly well-known poetry journal, and so this seemed to be the first poem that 
I can convinced an editor in the U.S. Um, of a magazine with significant readership that it was good enough to be in their magazine. So, in Spanish, the title of this poem is Te sorprendió la muerte, and in English, it's Death Surprised You. Death surprised you in a place far from home, from your people. You were thrown nameless in a hole, without belongings, without prayers, without flowers, without songs to light the way for your feet. And you stand at the beginning of a path while your mother seeks someone newly dead to entrust with your favorite clothes, the flowers that never scented your body, the cries that never filled your ears. She knows you are waiting. Yeah. Amazing. You know, you talked about the debt that you have to Irma for this project. I'm reminded when Pierre Joris came to town, he has been working on translations of Paul Celan for 55 years. He says he has an infinite debt when he talks about Celan. I'm imagining a similar feeling coming from you. I'm not sure if debt is the word I would use, I guess because my my associations with the word debt, you know, beyond kind of the obvious capitalist associations of the words, are this idea that um, that things are reciprocal. And my sense of how Irma Pineda thinks about our work is that we are, that things are not reciprocal back and forth in that way, that everybody's existing within a web of, of community and interactions and that the time that she has devoted, you know, to helping me translate these poems is also, it's part of a collaborative project. I do feel a debt in a sort of metaphorical sense of the worlds that have been open to me, the um, ideas that I've um, been able to consider, and and then even the community of um, the Isthmus Zapotec community and the reception for this book has been really, really wonderful. You know, being invited to participate in a class as the only non-Indigenous person in the class is, you know, it's an honor that it's, it's almost an inexpressible honor. And so she's a very well-known poet um, in, in Mexico more broadly, but particularly in her community. You know, she, she's, a, she's a rock star. Mm. And so people are really excited to, um, we study her poems. Actually, some of the texts that we use in the class, because there aren't, you know, grammar books or textbooks, are books of poetry. And so one of the first weeks of class, uh, might have even been the, the third class session when I started studying you know, what we did for that day was listen to and read one of Irma's poems uh, and then talked about the vocabulary in the poem. Uh, and when I, uh, when the teacher mentioned, oh, actually, Wendy is the person who translates Irma's poems into English, you know, there was this shocked silence <laughs> in the class. And that is, um, you know, certainly that in the the most beautiful conception of, of the word debt, that certainly does feel like a debt that can't ever be repaid. Yeah. What do you hope people take from this book? Oh, that's such a good question. What do I hope people take from this book? Read more literature in translation. It's a big, big, big world. And I, I know a lot of lovers of literature and a lot of writers who actively avoid literature in translation. They want to read work, quote unquote, in the original. And 
If there's a poem in this book that introduces you to an idea or an image or a metaphor that never occurred to you before, I promise you that's because it was not conceived in English. And so I hope what people will will take from this book is the inspiration to go seek out other literatures that are written uh, in other languages and particularly in indigenous uh, and minoritized languages. There are a small number of languages in which the vast majority of global literature is published and there are lots of literatures being published you know by tiny tiny little presses or being self-published or just being distributed you know via youtube and and social media and most of the interesting ideas that i have come across are ideas that originated in these small languages and you know linguists tell us that more than half of the languages that are spoken today in the world are going to fall silent by the end of the century. And that is an absolutely indescribable loss. It's an unimaginable loss, especially given that most of these languages, their literatures are contained in the speaking of them because they don't have a written tradition. And so anything that you can do to appreciate some of those smaller languages and learn about them and read literature that was written in those languages is really going to help in some small way, it's going to help us survive as a planet. Thank you so much for your time. I'm, Thank I'm you, grateful. Paul. Thank yeah. you so much for your close reading of this book and careful reading of it and, and being one of the first people to, to purchase it when it became available. <laughs> WendyCall.com is the website. and She's been our guest today talking about the new book by Irma Pineda, In the Belly of Night and Other Poems. Cascadian Prophet supporters include Diana Elser, a sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the eastern Missouri Breaks and western Ruby Valley Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the Northwest Coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at cascadianprofits.org.